Good morning. You did that really good. It is nice to see a little sunshine outside. I hope it hangs on for a while today. Thanks for being with us this morning. Um, We're going to open God's Word here in just a minute. We're going to be back in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And also this morning, we are going to be in the book of Judges. So if you want to put one finger in the New Testament and one finger in the Old Testament, we're going to be in Hebrews 11 and Judges 6, 7, and 8 this morning. But before we dive into God's Word, let's let's open our time here with a word of prayer. Lord God, I thank you so much for the fact that your word is alive and well, that it is here to uh, pierce through our hearts, Lord. It's here this morning, Lord, to challenge us, and I pray, Father God, that as we open your word today, that you would uh, use it in our lives, that we may leave here different than how we came today, that, Lord, we would see you in a new way and understand what you would have for us going forward from this point. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So for the last eight weeks or so, we've been in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. It's commonly called God's Hall of Faith. Um, and verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction, two things we don't see an awful lot of in the world these days, but two things that God challenges us towards here in the book of Hebrews. And you know, in the Old Testament, where most of these stories that we've been talking about are, they're given to us as examples, examples of how God has worked in the past in the lives of people so that we may learn from them. They're given to us as lessons of how God wants us to live in the world today. They're, they're not stories of perfect people. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the characters, you can pretty much see the flaws that they have. You can pretty much see that they're, they're ordinary people. But the thing that ties them all together is that each one of these folks that's listed in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it's not about their flaws It's not about how ordinary they are, but it's about the God that is neither flawed nor ordinary that gets a hold of their lives. So let me quickly review, if you haven't been with us through the whole summer so far, we started out with Abel. Abel came and presented his first and best sacrifice that was honoring to God, and God called him faithful. Noah took on a monumental task in building the ark and preparing for something that had never happened before in history, and God considered him faithful. Abraham and Sarah went where God led them without knowing where they were going and then believed God when he told them that he was going to do the impossible in their lives and give them offspring even in their old age. And God called them faithful. Isaac and Jacob believed in God's promises even though they happened in God's timing instead of in their timing, and God called them faithful. Enoch walked with God as a bold disciple, and God called him faithful. Moses aligned himself with God and took on God's mission in leading the people of Israel, and God called him faithful. Joseph Joseph confirmed God's promises to his offspring, and to future generations, and for that, God called him faithful. 
And then last week, we talked about Rahab. Rahab is someone who took notice of how God was working in the lives of his people and did not let her past or her current situation deter her from boldly pursuing God and seeking and then seeing God's deliverance in her own life. They're all people with, who give us examples of how God wants us to react to the things that happen in our everyday lives. They're all people with lessons for us and how we should also be faithful. But this morning we're going to begin in Hebrews 11, verse 32. And where most of the other stories have had a little bit about these different characters, verse 32 is a little different and sets us on a little different track. It says this, And what more shall I say? For time should fail, uh, fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth and David and Samuel and the prophets. All still great characters from God's word. Great characters who are not great men or women, but who have a great God. And this morning we're going to talk about Gideon. Some of you have been around and know that Gideon is one of my favorite Bible characters. Because Gideon had a front row seat to see God do amazing things through absolutely ordinary people. And because of that, God calls Gideon faithful. I grew up in the Chicago area in the 60s and 70s, and, and there was a, a young man who was getting his start who became fairly prominent in, in the political structure of the United States named Jesse Jackson, who was beginning in the late 60s, early 70s as a civil rights leader in the United States. In 1971, Jesse Jackson founded the Rainbow Push Coalition, and Push stood for People united to serve humanity. See, he had grown up in the projects of Chicago. Jesse Jackson had grown up and, and seen the poverty that was going on around him and seen kids with absolute despair in their lives and kids without any real idea of where they should be going. Kids that were basically defeated before they ever even got started. And so as part of his, his message and his mission was to inform the kids that he could influence about where they could go and where they could achieve leadership and serve humanity. He did a series of, of high school and middle school assemblies all around the Chicago area to start with and then nationwide. And every time he did an assembly, he had two basic messages. See, he had found that, that the 1960s had brought us into the drug culture and some of the other stuff that, that was taking over, especially in the inner city. And he found that the kids that grew up in the inner city really were kids without hope. And they were more inclined to, instead of think of their future, to think of how drugs could help them forget about their present. So he would get a whole auditorium full of students chanting, chanting down with dope and up with hope and talk to them about how God had a message for them and that their message was to have a hopeful future. And the thing that was going to screw that up more than anything was to get involved in the drug culture. So it was down with dope and up with hope. It's a pretty good message. His second message was this, and every assembly would end with the same thing, with kids chanting, down with dope and up with hope, and I am somebody. 
Because the other thing that was, that was prevalent in the lives of teenagers in the late 60s, 70s was that they just didn't feel like they were going to be able to have any influence at all beyond where they were right now. And that they were just, you know, part of society and that they were not going to achieve anything. And so it always ended with, I am somebody. And his message was this, that you had potential, that in and of yourself, that God could do something through you, especially if you pursued the right things. Pursuing hope for the future instead of getting stoned was a good message. But seeing themselves outside of their current situation was a better message for most of the students that he spoke to, especially in the inner city. And I think Gideon is one of these guys, if we look back at his life, who could have used particularly the second part of Jesse Jackson's message, that he was somebody. And in and of himself, he didn't believe that to start with. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But I want to take the story of Gideon and do it a little bit from the back and work towards the front. Okay? So I want you to turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to uh, Judges chapter 7. And we're going to pick up on this great, one of the great flannel graph stories of the Old Testament, right? And everybody's seen, Skeet and I used to talk about we need to have full-size flannel graph up here with guys, and you know, that would be really cool. But we've never marketed that somehow. But, um, because I don't think anybody would buy it, probably. But anyway, the great stories of Gideon, and you know, he's, there's these guys, and they're the army, and they're down by the river, and they got torches, and they got jars, and they got trumpets, and they got... God on their side, and we're going to get to all that in just a second. But we're going to start in Judges chapter 7. In Judges chapter 7, beginning at verse 2, it says this, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel should boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him turn, uh, return home and hurry away from the Mount of Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Let me give you a little background. Gideon and the people of Israel are going up against the Midianite army, which is huge. We're going to find out later that God says that the number of soldiers in the Midianite army is like the sand on the seashores. That's a bunch. And how many does he start out with? 32,000 soldiers. We're also going to find out that the word soldier is sort of a loose translation of what's going on here. There's 32,000 guys that show up. Soldier is about as far from the truth as you can get. But the first thing that God says to Gideon is, you got too many people in 32,000 to go up against the Midianite army that's too numerous to count. So Gideon, we're going to send a bunch of them home. And why does he say this? Is this because God is a terrible military strategist? No. He says it's because I want no one to ever think that it's what you did that saved you from the Midianites. This is all about me, Gideon, and not about you and the soldiers. So Gideon, you go before him and you tell him, anybody who doesn't really want to be here, go on home. Gideon does what God tells him. He doesn't ask questions. He just goes before the people and he says, okay, guys, God says if you really don't want to be here, you can go home. 
And Gideon's got to be thinking inside his heart, boy, I hope nobody leaves because we're already in a bad way here. 22,000 out of 32,000 leave, leaving him with 10,000. I know school's not in. That's a big math problem stuff. Got to comment it and everything, you know. 10,000 people up against soldiers too numerous to count. But God is about doing, uh, is about to do something incredible. And what God is about to do is going to be for his glory, but through the actions of his people. And see, that's one of the cool lessons of Gideon is that that God desires to do incredible things, and he lets us as his people go along for the ride and have a part in it. That's one of the things that God wants us to realize this morning, that when God works, oftentimes he has us be a part with him. But it's not so that we can achieve something on our own. It's not so that we can get glory, but it's so that he can be glorified. Look at what God says. He says, I'm not going to cull down your ranks from 32,000 to 10,000 so that you can do really cool stuff. He says, I'm going to do it so that no one will boast about anything but me. God wants and uses those who are willing to have faith in him. God wants and uses those who are willing to have faith in him. And God often brings us along for an incredible journey to do the impossible. Let's go on to verse 4. Verse 4 says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So the story is God gives them a little test. It's not necessarily a great military test. It's, about, it's a water drinking test. That's one I could have passed even in college. You know, maybe, I don't know. But now the army has culled down from 32,000 to how many? 300. 300. But... I think if we look at this story, God is testing the people to see who is really alert and ready to go. And that's what he wants with him. And so I think part of the lesson for us this morning is this, is are you willing to do whatever God asks you? Are you willing to be faithful and are you going to be alert to God's prompting in your life so that you can do what's in front of you? Verse 7 says this, And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. And so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. Now get this. That's the big weapon everybody brought with them. You got that? Midianites, as many as there are sand on the seashore, and the Israelites come for battle and they bring with them trumpets. Not a sharp fighting force, these ones. I love Evan to death, but Evan, if we're going into battle, I don't necessarily just want you to bring your guitar. You know, so. That's what they've got. 
So they, they take their trumpets and they go home, everybody except for 300. And he set all the rest of the, every Israelite man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below in the valley. And the same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given into your hand. I've given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp at Parah uh, with Parah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And he went down with Parah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand on the seashore in abundance. 300 people armed with trumpets going into battle against an army of real soldiers, too many to count. It says their camels were too many to count. And not everybody's got a camel with them. But catch this. God is glorified the most when he does the impossible for men. This is an impossible situation. But God is glorified the most when he does the impossible for men and lets us come along for the ride. Skip down to verse 16 with me. Verse 16 says this, And Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in their hands. Boy, he likes the trumpets. Bad military strategy, but we'll see. He put trumpets into their hands, and all of them, the uh, uh, hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Oh, this is better, so now we don't got trumpets, now we've got jars with torches in them. Okay. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on uh, every side of the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. You know what I love about this story at this point? Again, Gideon's following God's instructions, and he's not asking a lot of questions of God. See, I'd be before God and saying, God, really? Trumpets? Like we were hoping to get out there in the desert and find the stash of, you know, really good weapons, and now we got torches and jars. Torches, jars, trumpets. Really? That's what you're leaving us with. But that's not what Gideon does. Gideon says, this is what God says, so this is what I'm telling you we're going to do, and we're going to do this, and God's going to give us victory. That's a pretty cool guy that's willing to follow God, that's willing to be faithful and follow God, even though none of this makes any sense. They have to believe at this point, if they're really just thinking from a human standpoint, we're just walking in to get slaughtered out here. And they're going to take our trumpets from us. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch... And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars they held in their hands with the torches. And in uh, their night, I'm sorry, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 
This is their big battle strategy. You smash your jar, you hold up your torch, you blow your trumpet, and you yell real loud. But God does the best when the situation is impossible. Verse 21, And every man stood in his place around the camp, and all of the army ran, and they cried out, and they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So get this. This is how God works. I told you it's an impossible situation. Trumpets and jars and and torches are not going to do this. But God is, when they break their little jars and hold up their torches and blow their trumpets, the Midianite army all turns on each other. And they got great weapons, so they slaughter each other. That's how God works. God doesn't need us to be so well prepared, and God doesn't need us to be so well equipped. God just needs us to be faithful. And it's truly the best to be an integral part of what God is doing when God steps in to do the impossible. And the way we do that is by having faith in what he tells us. Gideon doesn't ask a lot of questions. He goes faithfully and does what God tells him to do. And then the next thing we find, we're going to skip ahead to chapter 8, and we're going to find that that even after this, that Gideon keeps great perspective as well. See, Gideon is one of the judges. And in in the, the history of the Israelites, at this point in time, God has chosen different judges, and there has been this circle, this cycle of judges that have come through the people of Israel. The people of Israel do fine for a while. God leaves them to do fine for a while. Then they start turning to sin. And when they do, God sends a judge to come and straighten them out. And when that happens, they start doing right again. And after a while, they start doing wrong again. Then God sends another judge. It's this cycle. And Gideon's one of those judges. Hence the term, the book of Judges, right? But Gideon becomes this great leader and judge of the Israelites. They defeat this huge army with trumpets and torches and jars. And the people of Israel start thinking great things of Gideon. So go to Judges chapter 8 and look at verses 22 and 23 with me for a minute. It says, And then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. You have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, Gideon did great things. Gideon was faithful to share with the people of Israel what God told him. But Gideon didn't do great things. God did great things. Gideon was along for the ride. So look at Gideon's response in verse 23. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. See, Gideon understands that all that has happened in his life has been a a matter of what God has done. They're up against this incredible enemy. The situation is impossible, and God steps in. And you know what? I think for all of us, that is a lesson that we need to learn, maybe for right now, maybe for the future. Because there are going to be things that come up in our lives that are seemingly impossible, that are seemingly too big, 
There'll be marital problems. There'll be problems with your kids. There'll be family issues. There'll be addictions. There'll be financial issues. There'll be health issues. There's all these things that, that in and of ourselves we can't fix. And we all find ourselves at some point in time in our lives with, with things that are, are absolutely impossible. And in those times, we need to remember that God delights in doing the impossible and he delights in bringing his children along for the ride. That's one of the messages of Gideon. That this is just, you know, from a military standpoint, this is the stupidest battle plan ever. But it works. Because it's not about the guys that are in the battle, it's about the God that's over the guys that are in the battle. must always remember, glory is for God. And the best thing that we can do is to be along for the ride. Don't ever get confused when God works in your life and think you've done it. Think that you have accomplished anything. Because it's God that works in us. And we're along for the ride. And we should rejoice in that. And Gideon, I love this about him. He says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you because Gideon knows who he is and who God is. And he certainly understands the difference. But you know, Gideon's this great man of faith. Gideon's this great man that's willing to follow God with this ridiculous plan into battle. Gideon, although I said didn't question God, in the beginning he did. So I want to go back for a minute and, and skip back to the story, the beginning of the story of Gideon. He didn't always start out as the guy who they wanted to be their king. Gideon wasn't always the man of faith who was excited to go against the army as numerous as the sand on the seashore, armed with trumpets and jars. Go back to Judges chapter 6 with me for a minute, if you would. In Judges chapter 6, it says this, beginning in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. This is that cycle of sin and judgment that God had brought on the Israelites. They had done evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God gave them over to the Midianites for seven years. And into that is going to step Gideon. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. You got this? They're not even living in their little tents anymore. They've carved out little notches among the rocks and they're living in holes in the ground and stuff. That's where the Israelites have gotten to at this point. They are so afraid and so put down by the people of Midian, they're literally living like animals in the wilderness. Verse 3, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So even though they're not living in villages and in, in cities and, and even in houses, they're still persecuted. And the, the Amalekites and the, the Midianites have gotten to the point that every time they even see, you know, like a, a garden growing someplace, they go and harvest the crops, and the Israelites are literally just barely hand to mouth at this point. They have no animals. 
They have no food. They have no houses. And that's where we find them. Verse 5. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels would not be count, could not be counted. So they would lay waste to the land as they came in. As Israel was brought very low because, and it, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Very low. I'm not sure how much lower it gets. They're homeless and starving. And that's where they are. And in this time, it says, And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Like I said, in all of our lives, there's going to come times, these cycles, where we're going to see horrifyingly bad things happen in our lives. It's going to come. It's going to be death. It's going to be financial problems. It's going to be health problems. It's going to be something. And in those times, are we going to be like the people of Israel? It says they cried out to the Lord. I hope so. I hope that that's the first thing that we do when we realize what is happening around us, is that we don't try and just fix things on our own, but we cry out to the same God that was in Israel then, that had been in Israel before that, and is still our same God that sits on the throne of heaven today. Because he cares and he enjoys, he glories in doing the impossible and letting us come along for the ride. So are we going to cry out to God and say, God, I need you. I'm going to trust you. I hope so. Look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth with Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Aberzite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord comes and finds Gideon. Where's Gideon? He's in a hole. He's in a hole in the ground. He's in a wine press, and he's got a few little stalks of wheat, and he's trying to knock the heads off of them so he can get a little bit of wheat to grind up to maybe make a loaf of bread and eat for the day. That's where God finds Gideon. He's hiding from the Midianites. Verse 12, and the Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Has God got a great sense of humor or what? Mighty man of valor, he's in a hole. He's in a hole hiding so that maybe he can get a loaf of bread. And God says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. I like other translations say, mighty warrior. This is not much of a warrior here at this point, this man Gideon in the hole. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, uh, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon's saying, you know, you're calling me this mighty warrior guy. I don't quite get this. I, I don't think God even likes us. God's turned his back on us. Verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in, the might, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So God says to him, listen, Gideon, 
Get out of the hole. I'm going to use you to deliver my people. I'm going to use you to deliver my Israelites from the Midianites. I'm sending you. Verse 15. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I'm the worst guy. I got nothing, God. How can this be? And in verse 16, the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Like I said, in the end of the story of Gideon, when he's out there fighting against the Midianites with trumpets and jars and torches, he's not questioning God. But in the beginning, he does. In the beginning, he says, but, but God, look at me. I'm, the, I'm from the worst family and the worst tribe in all of Israel, and the Midianites have been torturing us for seven years. We're starving to death. We're living in holes, and all I want to do is get a little bit of wheat to make a loaf of bread. And God says, I'm sending you, and I'm with you. Something happens at that point in the life of Gideon where he is willing to step out and say, because God is sending me and because I know God is going to be with me, I will do this. Gideon was not a soldier, but he's willing to take the mantle that God gives him. And I think there's a great lesson for all of us in this. You know, God sees us one way, and very often we're not even close to God's vision of our own selves. Satan likes to look at us and say, you know what, look at you. What good could God possibly do with you? You're a sinner. You have no gifts. You have no skills. God needs something special in this standpoint, and you're not it. But Gideon's willing to say, if God calls me to it, I believe and I trust that God can do great things through me. I trust that God is going to do the impossible and I want to be along for the ride. Satan likes to point out our shortcomings, but I'm here to tell you this morning that God doesn't make junk. God makes vessels fit for his service. And some of them are fancy and shiny and some of them are really plain. But God delights in doing impossible things and letting his people come along for the ride. Many times we focus on what we've done in our past and our fears of the present and our dread of the future. But the same God who was there when the Red Sea parted, when Gideon and the people of Israel defeated the Midianites by standing up and yelling and breaking jars and stuff, is the God that delights in helping and serving his people that are faithful today. Now, it may not always be in exactly the way you think it should happen, and frequently it's not in our timing. We see that also from the people in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. But God delights in doing the impossible and letting his children come along for the ride. I want to finish in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like I said, God doesn't make junk, people. God created each one of us for good works. 
were prepared, were empowered, and even though sometimes it seemed to be impossible, God can do things through us and with us if we have faith. I step back and say for a second here, though, that what God is talking about in the book of Ephesians is a little different than what he was talking about in the Old Testament. In the book of Ephesians, the writer of Ephesians is talking to Christ followers, to believers. He's saying that as believers, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has a plan for us, but the beginning of his plan is that we are in Christ Jesus. Satan has incredible book of lies that he likes to share with people. You're not good enough. You're too big a sinner. You have no appreciable gifts or abilities that God wants to use. You are from the worst family in the worst tribe. You're living in a hole and you're desperately trying to scrape through some, scrape together a little loaf of bread. And you think God cares about you? And this verse from Ephesians tells us that yes, not only does God care for you, that if you are in Christ, he has something in store for you. And they are good works and they were prepared long before you ever even were a twinkle in your parents' eye. But that means we have to be in Christ Jesus. And one of the great lies that Satan tells us is that, we're, that God wouldn't want us, that we're not good enough to be part of God's family. But the Bible says this, well, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you don't need any special pedigree, any special credentials, anything special in the things that we do in order for God to love you. God proved his love by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins, just like he did mine. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin was death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, and all we need to do to claim that gift is to ask for it and take it. That Jesus died once and for all for your sin on the cross, and if you ask him to be your Savior, he will. He will come into your life. He will save you from your sin, and that you will be empowered to do great things. Not necessarily what you want to do or think are the great things, but I promise you, God has something ahead of you. It says that you're created in Christ for good works, which were prepared beforehand. God has a plan for you. But you have to have Jesus as your Savior first. Gideon's biggest hang-up in the beginning was that he saw himself different than how God saw him. Gideon saw himself as useless and the worst of the worst, the most insignificant of the most insignificant, but God saw him as a mighty warrior, as a man of valor. Are you going to sit here this morning and trust your view of yourself, or are you going to sit here this morning and trust God's view of you? And understand that if you're in Christ, that he has something special in store for you, and he looks at you as a mighty man or woman of valor that he wants to use. If you're here 
and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we would beg you to do that this morning. The price has been paid for all the sins that you have committed. And all you need to do is claim that payment that Jesus made on the cross 2,000 years ago. His life, death, and resurrection was enough. In just a minute, we're going to share in the Lord's table with the elements that represent what Christ did for us. You don't need to be a part of a member of Tomball Bible Church to participate with us. All we ask is that you have come to the place where you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you haven't done that and you want to do that right now, all you need to do is pray silently to God and say, I understand that I am a sinner. I understand that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I want to claim his free gift of salvation this morning. Then you can be counted as part of the family of God. God has incredible things in store. God delights in doing the impossible and letting his children come along for the ride. Will you be faithful to follow God? morning. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word, for the challenge of people like Gideon and all the other people listed in in the Hebrews 11 hall of faith, Lord. I thank you, Father God, that you see us in a light that we don't even see ourselves in so much of the time, Lord. That you see us, Lord, as someone who you can use to do great and mighty things, that we can, Lord, go along for the ride as you do the impossible. Lord, give us the faith to follow you. Give us the faith, Lord, to just do what you ask us to do. And, Lord, to always give you the glory in the end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.